you. Good morning, everyone. So I'm excited to continue this revelation. Well, it's really the first part of revelation that we're going through about the seven churches that Jesus spoke to. And um, if you if you're wondering why we're doing this, you know, this was written, Jesus spoke to these churches 2000 years ago. So we might say, you know, well, th- that was specific to those churches. It doesn't really apply to us. But, you know, if Jesus is speaking to his church, there are things that we can glean from what he would say to each one of his churches and that we can hold the, the word up to ourselves as a mirror and say, if Jesus said that to that church, he probably would say a similar thing to me. And uh, we can just allow it to penetrate our hearts and adjust our lives and adjust us as a community. So um, when Paul shared three weeks ago and he preached from Revelation 1, which is where John first had the revelation of Jesus and saw him in his exalted state, um, John saw him with seven candle stands around him, if you remember that. And those candle stands or candles or lamps represented seven churches that had been planted already since Jesus had walked the earth and he had sent his disciples out. Seven churches had been started, probably maybe more, we don't know, but there were more obviously because Jerusalem is not one of them, but, but he's addressing seven different churches. We don't know how many there were, but he had messages for them. And in each one of the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, these are the five things that happen. The first thing is that there's a specific way that Jesus reveals himself to them. The second thing is that Jesus commends something that they're doing well. He encourages them and affirms them. The third thing is that he gives some kind of address, uh, an adjustment or a correction. The fourth thing is that he tells them something about their future. And for some of them, it's a warning. Like, if you don't address this thing, this is what will happen. And then the fifth thing is that he gives them a promise that this is what your future looks like if you will be faithful. So those five things happen in each one of the seven churches, except there's two churches that don't really get a correction. Um, So we'll address that today because the church we're looking at in Smyrna today, they don't really get a correction. It's a little bit different for them. And then there's another church that doesn't get a correction. So um, let's just open our hearts to hear what Jesus says to his church. Let's read in Revelation 2, verse 8. That's the passage we're looking at today. The main passage is Revelation 2, 8 through 11. I'm going to be reading a lot of different scriptures, but you don't have to turn there if you want. If you want to park your Bible or your app at Revelation 2, 8 through 11, we're going to keep coming back to that passage. So um, this is the church at Smyrna. It says, and to, this is Jesus speaking, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and who came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Okay, so this is Jesus' message to the church at Smyrna. So they were in a city called Smyrna, and that city still exists today. The name of the city has changed. It's actually called Izmir now, and it's in the nation of Turkey. Um... And my dad let me know yesterday that he and my mom actually visited that city when they did a tour of 
of that region back when they were a lot younger. So you can ask them what Izmir is like today. Um, but the gospel, I think it's so interesting just to kind of put ourselves really in the reality that to think that the gospel had already spread that far. So if you were to drive from Jerusalem to Izmir or Jerusalem to Smyrna, that would be about a 24-hour drive. That would be like driving from here to the border of Mexico and Texas. That's about how far away the Smyrna city was from Jerusalem. And I think it's pretty cool that just in one lifetime, in John's lifetime, the gospel had spread that far, that there were already churches that were established that far away. Now, obviously, they couldn't drive. It would have taken them a lot longer on road. They would have had to take ships. We know that the apostles experienced shipwreck and that those who went out uh, experienced all kinds of difficulty because travel was not easy, but the gospel had gone out. And I just think that that's really cool to think about. Um, And we see the first thing uh, remember I said there's five things for each church. The, the first thing is that Jesus reveals himself a certain way. So we see that Jesus reveals himself to the church at Smyrna very specifically. He says, from the first and the last who was dead and who came to life. That's how he chose to reveal himself to Smyrna. I am the first and the last. I am the one who was dead and I came to life. And there's a specific reason why Jesus revealed himself that way to Smyrna that we're going to get into. First and the last. When Jesus says he's the first and the last, Jesus was there before the beginning of time. We know that he was there when creation started. Jesus is existent into eternity. He already dwells in eternity. Scripture tells us that our God inhabits eternity. He's already there. He, he's outside of time. He's outside of this realm of time that we live in. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So he's, he's been in the past. He was there when everything in history has happened. And he's already in our future. So we don't have to be afraid of the future because Jesus is already there. He dwells in eternity. Jesus goes before us in everything. He does everything before we do it. And even to even death, that's true even for death, that Jesus died before we had to so that we don't have to. And we don't have to fear dead, death. He says, I'm the first and the last. He says, I'm the one who was dead and came to life. No, so not only did he go before us and die before we die, but he says, I came back to life. And he, he did that for us too. He died for us. He came back to life for us so that we, in our death, come back to life because he's already done that for us ahead of us. In John eleven twenty five, you may remember Jesus was talking to Martha and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he will live. We don't have to fear death. And this is very significant for the church at Smyrna. He wants them to know you don't have to be afraid of dying. And then in in Revelation 2, where we're reading in verse 9, Jesus commends the church, just as he does each of the churches. He says, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty. So those words, I know. He uses the words, I know, when he speaks to each of the seven churches in Revelation. So it's not unique to Smyrna. But I think it must have brought a particular comfort to the church at Smyrna that Jesus said, I know. 
because this message to Smyrna came at a time period when the church in that city went through tremendous persecution. We can prove historically that that city was uh, persecuting Christians. There were successive Roman emperors, several of them, who came into power, one right after the other, who persecuted Christians. And they were being persecuted specifically for their faith in Jesus and their belief in him. Many Christians were forced to meet in secret. We, can't e we don't even know what that's like. I think the, the closest thing we've ever experienced to that is maybe during COVID when we all had to like pee in our homes. But they had to meet in secret. They couldn't let anyone know that they were gathering as the church because if they were caught, they would be killed, literally killed. They would be burned at the stake. They would be fed to wild animals for sport. And the Romans would watch as, they, as wild animals would eat them. Many historians believe that the leader of the church in Smyrna was a man named Polycarp. And he was told that he must offer incense to the emperor as a sign of loyalty, but he refused and he was sentenced to death and he was burned at the stake. Imagine if Paul <laughs> refused to, to do something that the government demanded to blaspheme the name of Jesus and worship another God or worship a man and he was burned at the stake. How would we react to that? We would be afraid, right? We would be afraid for our own lives. And that's the reality that this church was living in. They were afraid, I'm sure, and yet they were continuing to follow Jesus faithfully. So this is the church that Jesus says, I know, to. He says, I know. I know what you're going through. I know your situation. I see your works in the middle of your tribulation and your poverty. So as I said, none of us are being persecuted in that way. But what does this mean for us? What can we glean for our lives from this? Have you ever may, maybe ever served faithfully in the face of tribulation or difficulty and wondered if anybody sees, if anybody knows? Have you endured an especially painful circumstance and felt like nobody understands? Have you ever experienced lack in, your er in an area of your life? Jesus said, I see your poverty, maybe financial lack, or maybe rela a, a lack relationally, a lack of support in your life in a particular area, and it makes you feel forgotten or abandoned. And maybe sometimes you've even found yourself in those circumstances because you've chosen to follow Jesus, that you've said, Lord, I will follow you no matter what, and following Jesus, you have found yourself in a situation that is very difficult. Jesus says to you in that situation, I know. I see your situation. So let's just unpack these things a little bit that Jesus mentions in commending this church in Smyrna. He says, I know your works, first of all. So I think the particular affirmation and com commendation here from Jesus is not just that they were doing works, even though that is a good thing. But I think the particular affirmation is that they had continued their works even in the face of tribulation, even in the face of poverty. It didn't make them stop their good works. And then second of all, he mentions their tribulation. So I don't think Jesus is commending them just for going through tribu tribulation. I mean, everyone in the world experiences hardship 
but it, I think it was because they were experiencing tribulation for the sake of Christ and also for the way they were going through that tribulation. James, one tw- James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So trials and difficulties can actually work to perfect our faith if we walk through them the right way. A trial alone will not perfect our faith. It can actually make us bitter. It can make us put walls up. It can make us close our lives. But if we walk with Jesus, and if it, as it says here, this is James 1, 2, and 4, let patience have its perfect work in you. We have to let what we're going through with the hand of God, in the hand of God, have a certain kind of work in our lives, and our faith is perfected and completed. I think he was also affirming the way they were walking through their tribulation because they were walking through tribulation in a Christ-like manner. They were being like Jesus, and we read about Jesus in Hebrews 12, verses 2 through 3. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured, Jesus, endured such hostility from sinners against himself. So the word here says consider him. In other words, remember him, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So if we will keep our eyes on Jesus, remember the way he walked through the cross, then we can walk through it the same way he did, that he, for the joy that was set before him, he endured. So it's not just the fact that we have difficulty. That's not, that doesn't make us any different than anybody else. The whole world is difficulty, but it's how we walk through it. And if we keep our eyes on Jesus in the midst of it. Because, as it says here in Hebrews 12, if we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, we will uh, become discouraged. That is the, the effect that trials will have on us if we don't. And then Jesus says, I know your poverty. And again, I don't think Jesus is commending them for being poor. I mean, anybody can be poor. That's not very hard, right? There's no virtue. Let me say this loud and clear and just break down any... Um, religious ideas that maybe some of us have come on t- held on to, there is no virtue in poverty in and of itself. It is not a good thing to be poor just for the sake of being poor. I believe God provides for us, and he even wants to bless us. But there are times in life that in following Jesus, we will find ourselves maybe having to give something up or find ourselves in a moment where we don't have the ability to provide what we need, and we have to trust God. And that kind of poverty, for the sake of Christ, is to be commended. There's virtue in poverty for the sake of Christ, not poverty on its own. Philippians 4, verses 12 through 13 says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And again, they were Christ-like in their poverty. 
We read in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, for you, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Jesus was rich in heaven, he had everything, everything, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. So when we become poor for the sake of reaching others, that is to be commended. Not poverty for the sake of poverty, but for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others. That's the kind of poverty that Jesus commends. And even in our poverty, we know that God promises to meet every need that we have. He never leaves us or forsakes us. So you might be experiencing some area of poverty in your life. It might not be financial. It might be in another area. It might be relational. There, God is with you in that. And especially if you are walking with him, he, he says, I know. He says, I know, and he identifies with it. And it, especially if we are in the process of walking with him, finding ourselves in these difficult situations, that's what he commends. And then, as I mentioned at the beginning, the third thing that Jesus usually does for each of these churches, the third thing is that he usually corrects them in some way. Like, remember last week we were talking about um, the church that Jesus said, come back to your first love. I have this against you that you've left your first love. He was correcting them lovingly. But he doesn't actually correct the church at Smyrna. There's nothing that he needs to adjust. Instead, he helps them to see something that, they're, that they haven't seen. I believe that he's just helping them have a different perspective. Um, and I believe that maybe the Lord wants to help us see something we haven't seen as we read this. In verse 9, he says, after he says, I, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, then he says, but you are rich. So he doesn't correct them, but he helps them to see something different. He says, actually, you're rich. And I think maybe Jesus wants, maybe not to correct us today, but just to say, I see everything you're going through, but from my perspective, you are rich. He wants to open our eyes to that, give us a perspective shift. So what was the church at Smyrna rich in? They were spiritually rich. They had the riches of heaven. They had the riches of the kingdom of God. James 2 verse 5 says, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? We all know from the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I believe that the church of Smyrna had the kingdom of heaven in their midst. There must have been such a spiritual richness because they were following Jesus and loving him fervently in the midst of great suffering. And that brought a richness that Jesus said, You are rich. When I look among the churches, you are the one who has richness. You are the one who holds riches. He was pleased with them because they were faithful to him. Jesus' character was being formed in them through the pressure of their trials. And I read a few commentaries and ex historical backgrounds as I was studying the church at Smyrna, and I found something that is so interesting and so beautiful that the name Smyrna... Has the, is the same word, actually, as myrrh. It's the same word, and it has the same meaning as myrrh. Um, and myrrh is mentioned throughout Scripture, 
over and over. Myrrh was used in the temple in the anointing oil. Um, it was, if you remember when the wise men brought Jesus gifts, they brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we see it there as well. Um, myrrh was in the oil that was put on Jesus' body when they laid him in the tomb. So we see myrrh throughout scripture, and myrrh is a resin that's taken from a tree. And the tree, the bark of the tree, has a very bitter taste. But when, when, the, when the bark is crushed and bruised, there's a sweet resin, su- sweet-smelling resin that comes from the bruising of that bark. So Smyrna was experiencing this bitter, bruising, crushing situation that tasted bitter. It was difficult, but it was causing a sweet-smelling aroma and fragrance to come from them, the sweetness of Jesus' character. So we see in other places of Scripture that pressure, this is a biblical concept, that pressure can be used by God to form and shape us into his image. This is a biblical concept. We see in Isaiah uh, 64, verse 8, it says, You, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. So most of you have seen a potter's wheel where the potter shapes the clay, puts pressure on the clay to shape it, and that's God's hand on us. He puts pressure on us in certain areas to shape us and form us. And a lot of that pressure, I believe, sometimes you know, I think at different areas in my life, I can remember at one particular time early on when we moved to Detroit, and I was like, God, why are you, like, why is all this bad stuff happening to us? You know, like, aren't you going to do something? And I just felt like the Lord showed me that he wasn't the one doing it, but he was using it. It was under his hand. He wasn't going to let it kill, kill me or hurt me or damage me, but he was using it to shape me. And a lot of times we think, well, there's this negative situation that can't be God, and God probably isn't the author of that situation, but he will use it in our lives if we allow him to shape us if, through our response to the situation. We are on the potter's wheel. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 10, it says, we are hard-pressed on every side. You ever felt that way? But we are not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted like the church at Smyrna, but we are not abandoned by Jesus. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. So the church in Smyrna, they were experiencing, they were identifying with the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus could be evident in that church. So this church, I believe, began to look like Jesus. They began to bear the image of Jesus and be formed in his image through their trials because of their response. And I know this because in the garden, Jesus said, when, before Jesus was taken to the cross, he was experiencing such tr- pressure and turmoil that he sweat blood. And, but his prayer was, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And that's what we see in Smyrna. So they begin to look like Jesus. They had the same response as Jesus to their suffering and to their trial. And another one of Jesus' responses to suffering is joy. Again, in Hebrews 12.2, we read this passage earlier, but it says, talking about Jesus, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And this myrrh, when it was mixed with oil in Scripture, when we read about it in different places in Scripture, 
it was actually referred to as the oil of joy. In Psalm 45, verses 7 and 8, it says, God has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes out of the ivory places which they ha- by which they have made you glad. So this, again, the symbolism and the meaning of the word Smyrna, meaning myrrh, and when we see it in scripture, it was often called the oil of gladness. And I believe that the church in Smyrna was rich in joy. And we can be too in the face of trials if we keep our eyes on Jesus. This oil that had myrrh in it was also symbolic of the anointing. And uh, the, in the recipe for the Old Testament, you can read the recipe for the oil they used in the Old Testament. You can read that recipe in Exodus 30. And myrrh was one of the ingredients that they put into the oil. And often when the anointing is mentioned in Scripture, there's often a connection right there to the presence of God, the anointing and the Spirit of God, the anointing and the Spirit of God. We see this again in Isaiah 61, uh, 1, which is, is the vision of this church. It's Jesus' vision, but, but we identify this as our vision from Isaiah 61. It starts by saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So this, this church in Smyrna had this oil of the beautiful, sweet-smelling fragrance of the anointing of God, which means they had the presence of God. They had the Spirit of God upon them. I believe there was a presence about the church in Smyrna. Can we as a church, can we as individuals allow our hardships to bring about a presence of God about us? because of our response through the pressure, through the trial. Nobody likes suffering, right? I don't. Even though we're talking about this today and talking about the joy that can be in suffering, how it can form us into Jesus' image, how Jesus can find us faithful, I will not put my hand up as the first volunteer for suffering. I mean, nobody likes suffering. There's probably something wrong (laughs) with you if you like, if you enjoy suffering. So that is not the point. We don't have to enjoy the hardship. So that's, that's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is that there is something precious to be gained in it if we will walk with Jesus. And again, none of us are experiencing what Smyrna was going through. But what are you going through? What hardships are you facing? What pressure are you facing? Myrrh, a sweet-smelling fragrance, can come from that. Can come from that pressing, from that bruising, from that... The sweet resin, the fragrance, can come from that if we allow the Lord to bring that out of that situation. Some of you probably know who Bill Johnson is. He's a pastor in California who leads Bethel Church. We do a lot of their worship songs. And his wife died about a week, almost two weeks ago. And she died of cancer. And he got up and preached the Sunday after she passed away. And I encourage you to go listen to it. It's on YouTube. It's an incredible message. And I think that so, I mean, anybody in the body of Christ could benefit from it. Um, But one of the things he said, he he was just being vulnerable and encouraging everybody to know how, how do we walk through hardship? How do we walk through these crushing moments like what he's just gone through with losing his wife? How, how do we respond when we're disappointed? So many good nuggets in it. But one of the things he said is, you will never get a chance to steward the moment you are in again. The moment you find yourself in right now, 
Even if it's difficult, you will never get another chance to steward that moment again. How will you respond in the moment you find yourself in now? Let it be a sweet-smelling sacrifice to Jesus. Let it be an act of worship to him. Let it be in us, Lord. And then back to Revelation 2 in verse 9, Jesus also goes on to say, I know the blasphemy, other translations say slander, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So what this means is that the church in Smyrna was being criticized and slandered and spoken evil of by Jews who were not representing God well. They were coming against them, and they were actually being used by Satan. Jesus is not saying that all Jewish people are evil. He was saying those particular Jews were being used by Satan in that moment to speak evil of the church, to expose the church, to get them caught, to reveal where they were meeting, perhaps, or to assist in throwing them into jail. They were being used by Satan. And, and you know, we encounter that sometimes in life, right? Sometimes even Christians can be used by Satan, to bring slander. And let me tell you, if you've ever, ever come under that kind of attack, it feels like Satan, doesn't it? If you've ever had people attack you verbally, slander, speak against you, it feels like nothing else. It feels like an attack of Satan. And Jesus says to that, I know. I know what that feels like because Jesus experienced that. He experienced that from the Pharisees. He experienced that kind of slander. Matthew 5, 11, and 12, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Again, not just for no reason, but especially when it's because of our stand for him that people attack us because they don't like Jesus, or they're being used by the enemy to try to stop us. Jesus says we are blessed when we experience that. And he says, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. So I just believe so many of Jesus' words to Smyrna put things in perspective for us again. Then Jesus tells them something about their future. That's the, the fourth thing that we see with each of the churches, that Jesus tells them something about their future. In verse 10 of Revelation 2, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, because they knew if they were put in jail, they're probably going to be killed. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So he says you're going to be put in prison for 10 days. Theologians mostly believe, mostly agree that that is actually symbolic of 10 years of persecution that they endured. Because historically there was about a 10-year period that 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 the church in Smyrna endured persecution. So that's symbolic language there, and a lot of the language in Revelation is symbolic. But the promise from Jesus, the fifth thing that he says to them, is that if they are faithful, even to the point of death, then their reward is life, the crown of life. That is their reward. So note, he didn't remove the persecution. 
He didn't say, if you're faithful, I'll take the persecution away, and that's going to be your reward. He said, if you are faithful in the middle of your persecution, even to the point of death, your reward is eternal life that nobody can take from you. And he also says, you won't be hurt by it. Isn't that beautiful? You won't be hurt by it. Not even death. Again, Jesus said at the beginning of this message to Smyrna, I am the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. That's why he has the authority to say this to them. Because he had already been dead and come to life. That gave him the authority to say, if you're faithful to death, you will have eternal life. And the second death will not hurt you, will not have any power over you. Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. Listen to this beautiful passage. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, church, no matter what we're going through, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus was saying this church at Smyrna, you might be fearing for your very life, but nothing has the power to separate you from my love. Nothing can snatch you out of my hand. So don't be afraid. And, you know, I think we go through life, and it's only natural to experience fear when we face difficult things. But there's a level of fear that, as believers, we never have to experience because we know our future is secure, that nothing really can harm us, nothing. You can even kill me, and I don't have to be afraid because of what Jesus has given me. So just in closing and in brief summary, these are the things I believe we can learn from the church at Smyrna, that Jesus is our pioneer who's gone before us, and he's our champion who's conquered even death for us, and he's overcome it with eternal life. And then because of that, we don't have to fear suffering. We don't have to fear poverty. We don't have to fear persecution. We don't have to fear the devil, and we don't even have to fear death. Our response to difficulty can cause us to become spiritually rich, rich in Christ-likeness, looking like him, rich in joy, rich in the presence of God, and that we can be faithful to carry on the work of Jesus in any circumstance. There's nothing we will face as a church or as an individual that says, that's it, I just can't follow Jesus anymore, or I just can't keep doing the work of God anymore. If we have those thoughts, let's remember Smyrna, that nothing got them to stop their works. They were faithful to the point of death. We can be like Smyrna, and we can be like Jesus, because that's the way he was too. And then we also learn from Smyrna that eternal life is our reward. It's our greatest reward. And, you know, I was just thinking about this last night, that our city that we live in, our beautiful city of Detroit, has experienced a lot of difficulty through the years, a lot of poverty, but I believe that Jesus wants his church in the city of Detroit to be spiritually rich. That the kingdom of God would be in our midst. 
that we would be Christ-like, that we would have joy, that we would have the presence of God on us and among us like that sweet-smelling myrrh and fragrance because of our faithfulness to him. That people walk around in poverty and hardship and turmoil and trouble and brokenness, and when they encounter us, they would sense the richness of God upon us, and they would undeniably know that he is real.